Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to this week's Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will shape politics in the future. This week we're taking a look at what it will take to create a better internet. Are we good at the internet as a society? And what is the impact of advertising on the way that the internet has evolved? Do we need a technology trademark to work out which technology companies are good for us and which technology companies are bad for us? And what's it like to be a woman online today? I'm going to be discussing all of this with this week's guest, who has a long and distinguished career working with companies to adapt to a digital world. That spreads from Big Brother to the BBC via the Royal Opera House, and Rachel Caldercott now finds herself as Chief Executive Officer of the internet think tank Dot Everyone. So to start off with this week's episode, Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, I'm um, Rachel Caldercott. I'm the CEO of Dot Everyone. We're a, a, a think tank that is trying to make the internet better for everyone. The internet's probably, I presume, played a kind of role in your social life and professional life over the years. Can I ask which, when you cast your mind back, which did the internet start to affect first? Uh, well, I suppose I'm quite unusual because I started working uh, online in probably 1997. So at the time where maybe like a few people I know might have had GeoCity pages, but it wasn't really that um, we were at the point where everyone was uh, chatting away online um, and certainly I think at that time I was a member of a few communities and I've been friends with those people pro- probably ever, ever since because there was a really tiny number of us but probably it was more significant in terms of work I think. Okay, and how did it become significant in terms of work? Well, I I kind of went on a weird journey because I started out um, as a um, lexicographer. And so I was writing the dictionary um, at a time when everyone started to realise that these huge books could turn into CD-ROMs. And so I started out probably firstly doing books into CD-ROMs and then those into interactive things and then interactive into web so I had this odd period in the mid to late 90s when I sort of alternated working on really academic books and taking those online or making those interactive and then working in entertainment because that was like the next area that really became interactive and so had quite an unusual mix of like working both at Oxford um, University Press and making um, websites for things like 
S Club Seven and um, Dawson's Creek, um, pretty close to each other. And so, when did the kind of penny drop for you that the internet was going to be life changing or society changing? Um, I suppose there's probably two moments that were both connected to work. One was in the early 2000s, I worked at the, the BBC and thinking about the early days of BBC online when suddenly, because of the platform, you were able to get a huge audience really quickly. Um, and I remember becoming really casual about having millions of viewers you know that that was every day and then after that probably kind of weirdly I spent a little bit of time well probably about a year working on things like Big Brother Um, so having this extraordinary feeling where you're creating content and putting it out on lots of different channels and so this is like pre-Twitter um, and people are actually bothering to look at it on their uh, teletext and they're getting the text um, messages and they're um, using up their dial-up to watch videos and those kinds of things and moments where content that we would create would get uh, 30 million views and suddenly just that feeling of being really incredibly connected to an enormous amount of people was that really changed the possibility I think for me and did Big Brother have a live stream yeah yeah yeah. it it was like slightly delayed so um, because there was obviously loads of people um, running around um, editing it um, checking that nothing really terrible was happening so it had a live stream then we were creating content over the day that was so the the show that went out on tv was often about the things that that had happened the previous day but we were creating it sort of live okay and big brother's journey has gone from i guess from kind of mainstream culture in its early days to celebrity culture um the internet has remained very much mainstream and part of society um i was watching your ted talk on the bus on the way to work the other day um and uh you were asking how many people in the audience think that they're good at the internet um why do you ask that question well because everything is really easy to use now right and so one of the things you see when you're creating products and you're testing them is that people people have a really different feeling of confidence now particularly with things on the phones I think you still have lots of difference of experience in terms of desktops and old laptops and all those kinds of things but that actually it feels like everything is really immediate and easy to use and there's something I think that happens in our brain that makes you really confident when things are easy and that actually the easier they are often it's because they're not very transparent or easy to understand and that when you stop to think about all the things that are happening and you realize that you're just 
skating on top. Um, I think that can be quite alarming. And so where are the places where you think people aren't as good at the internet as they might like to think? I think it's more in terms of their critical thinking and understanding. And and to be honest, I would say, you know, um, me too. There's loads of things you do because they're immediate. Like a great example is when you're hopping on and off um, 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 public Wi-Fi um, because there's something you really need to do. Um, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know that this is probably a problem. It, it probably isn't secure, but it's only a m- minute. That can't really be an issue. And actually, you're opening up um, lots of your personal information to anyone who would care to extract it. Or I think another thing is understanding all the things that happen after you clicked. So something like online retail is really interesting. So anyone who's ever done an Amazon one-click, I think, would be absolutely amazed at the um, thousands of things that happen between the the click and the the item turning up at your door. And Amazon now have these buttons called dash buttons. So... Um, the buttons are related to specific products, so you can choose to have a button for laundry liquid, loo roll, dog food, and every time you run out, you press it, and then it magically turns up. And in order to do that, there's not only all of the bits of inf- of, inf- of information that have to move around to get your um, request to Amazon, but then there's all the physical things that have to happen. There's the people who work in the warehouse, there's the driver, there's all those um, logistics, and they're really, really hidden from us. And just before I move on, what uh, when you click on the public Wi-Fi, when you say you're opening it up to anyone... Are you literally opening it up to anyone, or is it companies companies that can scour your data? You're, you're opening up to anyone who cares to see. So I think most of us are not going around extracting a, a other people's data. You know, it's not not something that 99% of the population are, are doing. But if you're looking at things like your um, bank account on public Wi-Fi, there's a huge possibility that because that isn't um, a secure connection, somebody who wants to take that information is able to. Um, And we now, I think, you see a lot of um, businesses are now telling their staff not to do things like look at their working mail on, on public Wi-Fi because if you have uh, confidential information there, there's a possibility that someone is able to take it and store it and sell it on. So when we think about people on the internet generally, are we more ignorant and is our ignorance a problem in terms of what's happening beneath the surface? Are, are we more foolable? 
um, and our ability to kind of take information that isn't perhaps accurate, which do you think is more of a problem at the moment? Um, I mean, I think both of those are quite harsh words. I would say when what we're not what's not happening is we're not being encouraged to think critically. Um, we have just done some um, research at Dot Everyone that explores how people feel about the internet, and um, I can't remember exactly, but there's a really interesting figure around the number of people who look at news sites they know aren't reliable, but they look at them anyway, and it's like over a third or something, and so it's more that. I think nothing has prepared us for the quantity of information we're now able to um, receive. And previously, a lot of the information that was given to us came from a relatively small number of trusted sources. And then I think another problem is that people really tend to um, believe things that are that come through friends and family. So one of the things I think that makes us a little bit more um, open to believing things we see on Facebook, I think there are two things, is that if it comes in the context of a piece of information and a friend or a relative is somehow um, passing on, then that gives it extra credibility. And the, there's there's another thing about it, which is um, there's a lot that we're able to take in relatively ambiently. So, you know, you can read probably six or seven words in a glance and that's kind of enough, which means that you're looking at headlines and you're thinking, oh, yeah, maybe, right? So the mixture of just being exposed to like lots of things which you're sort of looking at but not really looking at you know and not interrogating them another level and the fact that these things are coming to you in a place of trust is probably really changing how we're thinking about it and that actually a lot of the stuff that we're, we're being educated to do probably isn't really helping so for like the last 10 years there's been um, I think probably laudable but maybe slightly misdirected a thing about how important it is to move people from uh, consuming information to creating it so there's been lots of things about how important it is for people to learn how to code for instance and the thing about learning how to code is that teaches you to an extent how things work under the hood. But it's not the equivalent of doing a driving test, right? It's not the equivalent of working out when you need to stop or give way. And people, I think, draw the comparison between using the internet and learning to drive a lot and they say well I don't really understand how my car works and actually they don't remember they've 
spent quite a lot of time learning to drive. And it's only that that's become sublimated that they then don't remember it. Whereas we're all having to um, navigate totally, I think, overwhelming, completely different kinds of information without there being any kind of, um, not exactly training, but there's been no thought about both how that's changing us and the different kinds of um, resilience that we probably need to do that. And how do you think we got here? I mean, I was, I, was, I was going to ask, did we get here by design? But I guess we did get here by design. Um, but whether we got to the place where we would realise that we, people weren't going to understand the internet, um, it seems like we kind of slept, walked into some of it at least. You know, it's probably advertising. So in the early days of the web, everyone was casting around for a business model. And because there was a lot of money sloshing around, it didn't really um, matter. And one of the things that is quite extraordinary is that there's been a huge amount of innovation and disruption around all kinds of things, from healthcare to banking to transport. And yet the basic business model of lots of the web um, continues to be advertising. And there's a whole category of behaviour that happens just in order to put eyeballs on content in order to drive ad revenue. But quite a long time, the only real criticism that came around that was from other industries who had been disrupted. So... There was a lot of unhappiness from traditional publishers or traditional um, media companies, but that was really all about their own um, revenue streams. What there wasn't, really, was a lot of thinking about how that was changing us. And I think one of the complicated things is we spent a lot of time worrying about screen time, particularly related to children and I think like 10 years ago there were lots of conversations about whether uh, gaming was really um, bad for the children and that actually all kinds of things have happened in the the, the games industry there are now the um, Peggy ratings I think parents understand those more gaming is like a part of a mixture of things and it feels like partly because things have changed really quickly we've been worried about screen time we've been worried about learning to code and we haven't actually been sort of looking closely at all the how all the lots and lots and lots of different things that have been happening have changed us together because I think there are too um, um, many of them and I don't think anyone could see how these things that didn't seem to be related were all adding up together. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So if we've got to a place where all these little changes have added up to quite a fundamental shift in society, what are we going to do about that? I mean, a lot of companies that profit from the internet have now in positions of extreme wealth and power so what can we do to kind of take stock and try and maybe redress the balance a little bit well i think it's really easy to think that nothing is able to happen right that there are it's really easy to think there's a small number of global companies who are bigger than states and now everyone has to just roll over and I think a lot of things that have happened in the last year prove that isn't really true. So there are a few different ways of creating change. One of them is, I think, inevitably um, regulation. Europe have been really taking the lead there. And I hope we have an opportunity. I hope, I hope that at least one of the less bad things that comes out of Brexit is that we have an opportunity to define what the UK attitude is to internet um, regulation. And so that's a part of it. Another part of it is really about powering us as the people who use things. Another is that there's a real talent shortage for people um, with the kinds of skills that the big technology companies um, um, want and I think the more that the negative outcomes of the tech become known it's really clear that there are movements developing in the industry where people want to start working on things that are actually positively changing the world and then the biggest change is money so if you can't really hire the people, if if you're being fined by loads of governments, if 
customers are stopping using your services or they're changing how they use them. Facebook are currently um, running a campaign to stop people deactivating their accounts. Um, then actually, your business um, model has to change. So I don't know that anything drastic is going to happen, but I imagine the internet will be looking at in five years' time will be really different, where, you know, after the general data protection um, regulation comes in later this year, there'll be all kinds of things that have to be um, more transparent. There'll be, I think, certainly in the next two years, more other kinds of legal controls. And I hope we'll all become more engaged and interested in um, the the things we're doing on our phones. And so if, if we split that crudely into expecting politicians and government to deal with the regulatory aspect and some form of... Um, commercial com- commercial incentives on big tech companies to change the way that they operate that kind of leaves us as yeah. internet users so what can what can we do individually um or what would it be good to see people do to ch- sort of try and contribute to to shifting things one of the most difficult things is getting people to stop doing things that are con- convenient and easy right so it's in everyone's interest that um, they get their packages delivered to their house it's in everyone's interest that their connectivity is always on but one of the things we've seen in the research that we've done is people are starting to get to a tipping point where they feel like technology is great for them as individuals and not that good for the rest of the world and there are two um, particular things in there I think nearly 80% of people think that technology is better for them as an individual um, and that they have never never felt more connected and then slightly more, I think it's more like 82% of people are really unhappy that everyone is walking around looking at their phones. And I think that what will happen is, as we have these like two conflicting feelings, we will just start to choose to do slightly different things. So there's um, something about putting your phone away and talking to people. I mean, it's really, really, really easy. You see like whole families sitting on the the tube and everyone is on their phone and I think we'll come to a point of that just being oversaturated and people are going to start to want to talk to each other and look at each other and not spend hours on Candy Crush well they'll probably always want to do that but not as the only thing as like we start to get arthritis in our thumbs and our eyes get bad you know there's going to be other things and then I guess it's in everyone's interest to just take better care of their data and to be empowered to do things like maybe use ad blockers um, if you're unhappy about the amount of information 
that is following um, year-round online, then there is always the alter- alternative of um, you of you using an ad blocker. Um, what do you think we should expect from our politicians? I mean, we're in interesting times right now. Brexit is distracting everyone and will continue to. I think one of the things that is disappointing is that there's not a, there's not a clear view in the government of whether technology is here to save us and to lead us to a better economy or whether it's completely evil and is um, all about extremism and child um, and child um, pornography. And the thing that's happening is that because there are those two completely different views, there's not a lot of realism happening. And I think the thing that I would like to see is a little bit less headline grabbing and a little bit of genuine engagement in the things that are affecting everyone's lives. And something that I know that everyone I've talked about is this idea of a kind of trademark for technology. Yeah. How might something like that work? Well, what it's quite tricky, actually. Um, but what we're hoping is that there can be a number of standards that companies who, who are creating services can sign up to. So these are standards that would range across everything from... How you're de- how you're dealing with people's data to the design patterns and how transparent and understandable things are, um, how you're potentially all the way to how you're distributing your uh, profit and um, um, paying your workers, and thinking about what um, the fair trade mark does it does two things um even if you're not buying the fair trade it's there in the store it's a reminder it's there that there is an alternative and there's a huge amount of lobbying and and infrastructure change that happens in the background there and the other thing it, it does is if you are able to buy into it then it, it makes you f- feel better about the purchase you know it gives you as a con- as a um, consumer a feeling of positivity and so what we're trying to create at the moment is a, something that is relatively easy to implement that doesn't require like loads of auditing and back office stuff but that can be a really easy sign to people who are either using your service, um, downloading your app, that something is a better choice. And the thing we haven't really worked out, this is the kind of problem, is how you actually can obey that to the consumer. Um, I think that's the that's the trickier bit because lots of the things where lots of the tools and services that we're experiencing now um, are becoming more and more ambient when you're thinking about things like internet of things and 
voice control speakers um it's really hard to know how you're interacting there but i'd hope i'd hope that we get to a point where there's a there's a clear indication to you as an individual that when you're doing a, a thing there's a choice between like something that aligns to your values or is looking after you and something that is maybe just easier and cheaper and it's up to you to choose and when we're thinking about consumer choice how far off i'd like to think that one day these sorts of issues are things people might make up their minds about how they vote on and at the moment it doesn't feel to me like many people are factoring in a government or a political party's approach to the internet and the future of internet regulation when they're thinking about the decisions they're making to vote is there do you think that's likely to change or do you think there's more we could do collectively to make people think about these things probably the thing that that kind of challenges that the most is around the um the um um election tampering so thinking about um russian interference in elections here and in the states i think those kinds of issues get a lot crunchier for people <clears throat> that's more like like that is less of an a- an abstract harm and that's more like um something that you can relate to through i don't know like pre previous um paradigms like the cold war you know like so i think that will start to like how we start to treat that will become interesting but there's a huge extent to which a lot of the reasons we don't really like we haven't really been understanding how technology has changed us is because it isn't visible and one of the reasons the current government are really keen to highlight things like child safety is because they become tangible really quickly and i think the challenge is how do you make things that are a little bit abstract um not really in front of mind because everyone has busy lives how do you turn those into uh, uh, things that are like concrete rights that people feel they have and have to stand up for and at the moment that is really something that activists um are looking after but that one of the things i'm hoping dot everyone is able to do we're we're going to start experimenting with a a um public information campaign like a sort of old school 70s uh equivalent of of how to cross the road um and to see if that kind of messaging starts to make these things just a bit more tangible to people and whether or not that then creates i suppose more change but i mean i've you know who knows that was a long answer that hasn't really answered the question I uh, am conscious of the time, so I'm not going to ask what worries you most about the way that technology is developing. I know you've 
pointed some interesting facts on the use of facial recognition at Notting Hill Carnival. Right. Um, autonomous weapons, which kind of makes me think of the scary dogs from that Black Mirror episode. I don't know <laughs> right, if you've yeah, seen yeah. the latest ones. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's something that's important to me to talk to you about, which is kind of um, how women find life online um, and whether there's a particular challenge uh, that faces people who are vocal or prominent online about the changes that they want to see in society. I mean, the thing is, it's not that different to being a woman in the world. Um, There's always, well, not always, but there's often someone who is prepared to patronise you or talk over you or whatever. And one of the things that is interesting, almost, is that the internet and social media have have made those phenomena available for ev- for everyone to see and while obviously i think online bullying and harassment is completely terrible and can't be defended at all on the other hand, you've seen the incredible rise of movements like Me Too, where actually an organised group of people having a voice, getting to, to the critical mass, are able to create change that has changed some of the biggest industries in the world. It's changing government here. Um, it's changing... You know, it, it it's one of the only things I can think of that went from Hollywood to Westminster in a couple of weeks. And that actually, I think that's very hopeful. Um, it doesn't counteract all the negativity. But I think as well, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope in um, the way that the generations who are who are growing up now who seem to be i don't know a lot kinder and a lot more self-aware than maybe some of the traditional entrenched kind of power that that i certainly um, um live through um potentially the opportunity to be open and communicate with each other could could turn out to be great um i hope it does and just before we finish i i was going to ask and you've written very a very interesting article on your medium blog which i would encourage people who are listening to go and have a look at about uh women the women's gaze and the robots gaze right, okay yeah so i'm not going to ask about that because i know that you've got to get away as a busy ceo um but my u- last question is usually to kind of um ask for one inspirational or uplifting Anecdote, and I think I will ask, given where we've just ended, if if we if I was to gift you omnipotence over the internet, um, what what one thing might you change um, to try and either to strike a blow for the sisterhood online, or whether it's to to kind of collectively improve the quality of discourse that we have? What would be the change you'd like to see? I would turn off advertising because suddenly, if you if you take that away then everything changes and I think not only would that change um, a lot of the of the harms that we're experiencing now but it it would just introduce different kinds of create 
activity. Rachel, I know as a fellow South Londoner how far it is up to this part of North London, so I really appreciate you coming up and taking the time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. So that's all for this week's episode. I hope it's got you thinking about some of the things you can do to engage more productively with the internet and some of the things we can do collectively to try and ensure the internet is a better place for all of us to spend time online. Next time you hear from us, we'll be on the road in Bristol, which is very exciting, and you'll find out all about that in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please do subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, share it with others, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, we can be found at Government vs. The Robots, which is at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. <laughs>